I'm your friend now. I became your friend. You're like my, I don't know, 315th friend. So I'm like, yes. I just, I, I mean, I just, I just want to have more. I would love Facebook. That's right. I don't know anybody. Yeah, I don't tweet, but I, hey, I'm on Facebook. If you guys want to be my friend, I'll be your friend. Um, so if you notice, I haven't talked about softball to you guys for a while. Uh, there's a reason for that. We're not going to talk about it because it's just terrible because uh, we moved to a new, new division and we are just getting our butts kicked. So we just don't talk about it. So there you go. Um, I, I, do, I do have uh, a couple announcements for you. Um, there's an elderly person in our community that came to our attention through Community Partners in Caring, which we do a lot of stuff with. And next Saturday, they need help with a project to finish off for this guy that can't get out of his home. And so we need like one or two more people to help out. And if you are uh, able-bodied and you can move and pick up stuff and throw stuff away and help this guy out, let me know. And I will get you in touch with the lady who's kind of overseeing that for us. And we, are, we will help somebody in our community because it's very important for us who call ourselves believers to be involved with things in our community. All right. We good? That's wonderful. Why don't you guys stand there for reading of God's Word? This is Psalm 94, verse 11, and it says, The Lord knows the thoughts of man. He knows that they are futile. Let's pray. Father, tonight I ask that we would be a people who understand that our own thoughts and our own ways are futile and that you are God and you are king and you lead us in the paths that we are to go. I ask that we would be a people who trust you and your sovereignty and that we would trust you to be the God that leads our lives so we can get our hands off and begin to actually do things right. Amen. Have a seat. If you have your Bible, you can open up to John chapter 18 tonight. It's where we start. Uh, In John chapter 18, it works like this. Jesus just told his disciples he's going to be betrayed. Uh, Last week, Jesus prayed for them and for us in John 17. Not like actually last week he showed up and said, I'm praying for you. Uh, Now, Jesus is going to be arrested and sentenced to die. Uh, Today, you're in what's called the Garden of Gethsemane. In the Garden of Gethsemane, I think it's really interesting because this is where Jesus is betrayed. Just like in the original garden is where man betrayed his trust that God gave to him, man betrays that in a garden. Jesus is betrayed in a garden as well. And what you see in the book of Genesis is you see that God comes looking for man when man had run astray. And just like that, Jesus comes and he seeks to bring you and I back into right relationship with God again. So today is going to be a little bit theological. Again, uh, you'll see a few themes, and I think you will also get one of the clearest pictures of Jesus' trust in God the Father, and that gives him great peace and much comfort in the midst of his trial. We'll look at the ideas of foreknowledge and sovereignty, and we will discuss this because I believe that's where the scriptures go, and I believe that all of you are smart enough and capable to understand this. We will see. Okay, that's how it goes. I'm going to give you a lot of scripture today. Actually, most of my message is probably scripture. Half my message this morning... Probably scripture. I think you can handle that as well. You're, you're going to be okay. Now, I believe what we discussed this morning is going to be very important because your understanding of God will have great ramifications upon your life, your spiritual life and your physical life. An inappropriate view of God leads to not understanding or knowing how to cope with many issues that come up in your life when you have chaos and you have trouble. So I will try to help you understand this a little bit by, again, looking at two very sexy subjects. The first one is called foreknowledge. Okay, Foreknowledge. Foreknowledge is like this. You and I, we exist in time. 
God is different than us and He exists apart from time. You see this various places in Scripture, but places like Revelation 1.8, Revelation 21.6, says He is the Alpha and the Omega. Uh, he begins time. He ends time. He is not bound by it or limited by it, but God does involve Himself within time as Jesus steps into it. For God, our past, present, and future is one completed action. And as we travel through life, we may be surprised at things that happen to us, but God never is. God never wakes up one day and is startled by anything like, oh my goodness, I didn't see that happening. God never says that. Okay. The second subject is sovereignty. And God, this is God is more powerful and he rules over everything and everyone. Genesis 50, 20, it says what these men meant for evil, God turned and used for good. That is what God does. He takes human sin, human error, misunderstanding. He takes all that and bends it towards his good. Romans 8, 28 says, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. So it doesn't matter what happens. God can always bend our foolishness to his glory and our joy. You got it? it. Okay. You guys are like, I'm going to get it this morning. Not really. We're just going to hit a whole lot of scripture. So we're going to look for these in the text today. Uh, I'm just going to read the whole thing. Okay. So I'm going to read an awful lot to you. I have no pictures to be like, okay. So you're just going to, we're just going to hit it and we're going to go. This is Jesus' arrest, his trial, and his sentence. At this point, you guys ready? You got your Bibles? John 18. Here we go. Uh, when he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. Now, Kidron actually means darkness. So Jesus is entering this place of his death, which is a place of darkness. On the other side, there was an olive grove, and he and his disciples went into it. Now, Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the grove, guiding a detachment of soldiers. A detachment of soldiers is 600 men. And some officials from the chief priests and Pharisees, they were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And I love this because here you get John's little commentary, and Judas the traitor was standing there with them. It says, When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Verse 7, again he asked them, who is it you want? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. I told you that I am he, Jesus answered. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happens that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. In case you have a question, you can go ask him. So John puts that there. Jesus commanded Peter, put away your sword. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Verse 12, when the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus, oh, then they did. Uh, they bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it would be good if one man died for the people. Simon Peter and another disciple, this is probably John who writes the book, were following Jesus. Because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. But Peter had to wait outside at the door. The other disciple, who was known to the high priest, came back, spoke to the girl on duty there, and brought Peter in. You are not one of his disciples, are you? The girl at the door asked. He replied, I am not. Now, that's Peter's first denial. And it's interesting that a servant girl at the door, one of the lowest of the low positions, someone who is the lowest in society, asked Peter this question, and he feels the need to actually lie. Verse 18, it was cold, and the servants and officials stood around a fire they had made to keep warm. Peter was also standing with them, warming himself. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. 
I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in the synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. Now, this isn't a legal trial, what is happening right now. It should have been conducted. They should have gone out and gotten the eyewitnesses. They would interview the eyewitnesses. Then the defendant is brought in. The defendant is not asked anything that could incriminate them. What is happening here is Jesus just asked them to run the trial by the law the law that they actually say they follow. He's trying to get them to follow the law. These scribes and Pharisees and teachers of the law, he's trying to get them to follow the law. Okay, when Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby struck him in the face. This is also illegal, in case you didn't know. It's not like you can go to a trial today and, and a defendant can say something. You can walk up and go, slap! Cause, okay, uh, is this the way you answer the high priest, he demanded. Verse 23, if I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Then Annas sent him still bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. As Simon Peter stood warming himself, he was asked, you are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it, saying, I am not. Second denial. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him. I, was, I know who you are because you cut off my buddy's ear. Didn't I see you with him in the olive grove? Again, Peter denied it. Third time, at that moment, a rooster began to crow. Then the Jews led Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning. This means 3 to 6 a.m. And to avoid ceremonial and cleanliness, the Jews did not enter the palace, which is great irony, just like many religious people to do today. You can do a false trial and try and kill a man, but I won't step into that place because then I'll be unclean and I can't uh, you know, celebrate Passover. They wanted to be able to, sell, so, to able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, What charges are you bringing against this man? Verse 30, If you were a criminal, they replied, We would not have handed him over to you. And Pilate said, You didn't answer the question. <laughs> Pilate said, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone because only the Romans could do that. The Jews objected. This happened so that the words Jesus had spoken indicating the kind of death he was going to die would be fulfilled. Verse 33, Pilate went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. It was your people and your chief priests who handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, You are right in saying I am a king. In fact, for this reason I was born. And for this reason I came into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? Pilate asked. With this, he went out again to the Jews and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. But it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, No, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in a rebellion. Chapter 19, verse 1. See, we're just going. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. This is with a whip with bone or metal in it that would take and actually rip into your flesh and pull your flesh away from your organs so it would expose them. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck him in the face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said, Here is the man. Verse 6, as soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, crucify, crucify. But Pilate answered, you take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jews insisted, we have a law, and according to the law, he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid, and he went back inside the palace, 
Where do you come from? He asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said. Don't you realize I have the power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jews kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of Passover week, about the sixth hour. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest said. And that is the great denial of God by the Jews. Verse 16, finally Pilate handed him over to be crucified. Wow, it's a lot, right? Jesus' arrest, his betrayal, his sentencing. What you see in this narrative is that everyone is trying to be like God. Everyone is trying to have foreknowledge and predict the future. Everyone is trying to have sovereignty and change that future to meet what their will is. The Romans think they will see, they see where this movement is going. And so what they have to do is get a hold of Jesus, a rival king. Let's take him down for the Jews to get out of control. We have to kill him and get rid of him. So they try to be sovereign and change their future by putting him to death. The Jews gaze into the future and they think Jesus will overthrow the religious structures. And so they have him killed. They even said earlier in John, look, the whole world is going after him. Peter gazes into the future and sees Jesus' death so he gets a sword. And it's foolish because usually furious people, they have their fury end in folly because 12 guys cannot take on 600 soldiers, no matter what the movies tell you, you know, and folly. And then Peter later then, he perceives that if the crowds realize he is a disciple of Jesus, that he could be killed as well, tortured and crucified. So he tries to be sovereign over his own future by then denying who Christ is. Everyone is trying to be sovereign over their future. Everyone is trying to figure out where the future is going and what is going to happen. And they're trying to get Jesus and kill him to bend that future so they can have their own agenda. And the only one not freaking out in this entire account is who? Jesus. Exactly. So we're going to look through the book of John quickly. If you have it, you can turn to chapter 6. John chapter 6. I'm going to show you quickly okay, how Jesus is the only one in this account who maintains his head that he is relaxed and he is calm and he is at peace. Why? Because he does this because of his right understanding of God the Father. John's view of the crucifixion, it is completely amazing because he treats Jesus with great authority and great respect. So John chapter 6, verse 70. Okay, here we go. What did Jesus know? It says, Then Jesus replied, Have I not chosen you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who, though one of the twelve, was later to betray him. The first thing Jesus knows is that he's going to be betrayed. So when Judas hands him over to be murdered, Jesus is not surprised. He didn't need to go to therapy and figure out, Oh my goodness, why did Judas leave the ministry? He didn't need any of that. He knew what was going to happen. Chapter 7, verse 6. Therefore, Jesus told them, the right time for me has not yet come. Jesus knew the timing of his death, the season of Passover, foreshadowing the Exodus. You get to John 17, verse 1, and Jesus says, the time has come. So when it is time, Jesus says, it's time. Boy, I know, I'm trying to get you guys involved a little bit here. Okay. So when the time comes, Jesus says, it's time. There you go. Chapter 8, verse 28. 
So Jesus said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am the one I claim to be and that I do nothing on my own but speak just what the Father has taught me. So he knew, knew he's going to be betrayed by Judas, knew the timing, and then he knows he's going to be killed by the Romans because the Jewish mode of execution is stoning, which is not fun and neither is crucifixion. Jesus says he'll be lifted up. That's the Roman mode. So he knows when, who, and how. Uh, chapter 8, verse 44 He says, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. He knows he's going to be guilty of no sin and that they would then have to lie about him and then murder him. The portrait is that Jesus knows the mode of his death, the circumstances, who would do it, and how they would do it. Uh, Chapter 10, verse 14 Actually, start in verse 17. It'll be easier. Uh, Jesus says, The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. Uh, the one who takes it from me, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. So he lays down his life of his own volition. That this is a plan of the Father and that plan cannot be stopped. He knows that when he dies, his death will not be the end. Death cannot actually hold him. He will rise. He knows he will die of his own volition and that he will come back. Chapter 11, verse 25. He is talking to Martha. It says, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? So he claims that he is the resurrection and all resurrection is tied to him. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul actually says that he is the first fruits. He is the first fruits and those who believe will also rise again with him. Chapter 13, verse 38. You're like, holy cow. Yes, holy cow. That's good. Then Jesus answered, Will you really lay down your life for me? Talking to Peter. I tell you the truth, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And you just saw that in John 18. He sees Peter's betrayal, and he knew it. The rooster is going to remind you, Peter. Uh, Chapter 14, verse 1. Jesus says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place I am going. So he says he's going to die, rise, go to the Father. And this whole idea of a house is a metaphor of heaven. He's going to prepare a place for you and I. He knows he's going to die. He knows he's going to be betrayed. But he knew that death would only be him willingly laying down his his life. He knew that there was the resurrection and that he is that resurrection. And he knew that our only hope, our only hope was his death and resurrection and his coming so that we can be with him. Jesus' foreknowledge is complete. Jesus' sovereignty, it is sure. Now go back to John 18. And I want you to see foreknowledge and his sovereign authority here. Because if you do not understand Jesus in this way, when trouble comes, you will lose faith. uh, You will lose your way and believe that you are alone. Jesus understands that the Father, and he understands the Father's plan completely. This, at this point, is Jesus' darkest moment. He is denied by Peter. He is denied and betrayed by Judas. The people he created want him dead. The religion he is raised in, he sees so distorted that they kill him. The scriptures that he had known and through his spirit had, had helped write, he sees them twisted in such a way that is evil. And in this moment, I want you to see how John portrays Jesus. He portrays him as a king. And so I want you to see your king. Chapter 18, verse 4. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out. So Jesus knows 
what is happening. He knows exactly what is happening. Verse 6, And Jesus said, I am he, they, 600 warriors, drew back and fell to the ground. I love that. little reminder of who he is. They are, we want Jesus. Boom! And the whole army falls. It's like... <laughs> That's awesome. You know. And was Jesus just a little weak pacifist that took his licking? No. No. He gives you a glimpse of what could have happened if he was willing to. You know, if he wanted to fight, he would have won it, not the disciples. Verse 8. I told you that I am he, Jesus answered. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. He looks at 600 warriors and government officials and tells them what to do. These are my men. These are my guys. You don't touch them. That's the rule. And I'll go with you. You know, and he is the one being arrested. Uh, verse 11, Jesus commanded Peter, put away your sword. So not only he tells the government officials what to do, then he tells Peter what to do. He says, shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? The cup of God refers to the will of God, whether that is blessing or that is suffering. He tells Peter he will not try to ever override the will of the Father. He says, I will drink this cup. Uh, verse 32, He's before Pilate. He said, this happens so that the words Jesus had spoken indicating the kind of death he was going to die would be fulfilled. Everything Jesus did, God works that out for all that he had promised. Uh, verse 36, Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you are right in saying I am a king. In fact, for this reason, I was born. Jesus is soon to be sentenced to death. And what does he say? I am a king. I am a king. Uh, chapter 19, verse 11. Jesus answered, You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. He says, None of what is going to happen is possible without the authority of God. And God is not making people murder Jesus, but the authority that they have to do that is only granted by God. And the stage is now set for the crucifixion. The Romans, they want to know the future and bring it to pass as they wish it were. The Jews wish to dictate the future and bring their will to pass. Peter tries to force the future to his view and then just wants to save his own skin. And Jesus makes it clear that he is the only one in charge and the only one with authority. And he knows the sovereignty of the Father and that his hard circumstance is not a failure on God's behalf. Jesus rested knowing that even though the cup was bitter, he was going to drink that cup. Is anything in Jesus' mind at this point considered an accident? Anything? No, not at all. Everything comes out of the sovereignty and the foreknowledge of God. So the question for you and I, do you think Jesus knows your future? Do you think God has control over that? Do you think that God saw you here today in the present circumstance that you are in and knows all about it? Of course he does. Do you think God can bend your mistakes to his will? Of course. Of course, but it is his timing, his timing, not ours. If you get this and you get your mind around the sovereignty and foreknowledge of God and who he is, this will bring some practical things out in your life. This perspective will give you certain things. The first thing it gives you is hope. It gives you hope because you know your circumstances are not the final word. God's word is the final word. Jesus couldn't be in a darker place. He is flogged, crown of Jerusalem thorns pressed into his skull, carrying a cross to the place of his murder where he is going to forgive those who kill him. Peter, the leader of leaders, denied him. He is betrayed with a kiss. And Jesus, again, doesn't need therapy. He doesn't need medication. He doesn't freak out because he knows the Father is not done. He knows. He knows he will rise. He will save his kids. He will bring them to the house that he has prepared for them. There is hope. The bitter cup that he has will be replaced by a cup that is sweet. You get hope. The second thing is you get an ability to yield yourself to the will of the Father. 
That doesn't mean that we are passive and just go, okay, whatever happens, happens. But we yield to God in very hard places. So we get through it and we move on with God's desires. Third thing it gives you is the clarity of God's love, the clarity of the love of God. The ropes did not constrain Jesus to the beating. His love for us did. That's what constrained him. God is bigger than our sin. God is bigger than our error. God is bigger than our mistakes. And he will bend it all to his will. Our God is tremendously mighty and nothing is greater than God. You're in your life, you know, right now, you know, all your problems may seem very big and your circumstances very big and God may seem very small. Maybe trouble seems very near and God seems very far away. But if anybody should have felt that, it should have been Jesus. Because that's the circumstances he is in. But the truth is that God is very big. And God is very close to you and I. The fourth thing it brings you is freedom. We live in a world that is obsessed with controlling and predicting tomorrow. And yet Jesus says, don't worry about it. You can plan for it, but don't worry about it. We don't need to know the future because we know God. You don't need to run out and get your palm read or tarot cards or figure out what the horoscope says every day because it's all bogus anyway. You need to know God, and you trust God because God knows the future and He is trustworthy. And there is great freedom in that, great freedom. We don't need foreknowledge, we just need faith. And we also need this whole idea of freedom from being sovereign ourselves. We don't have to work everything out in the right way all the time, you know, to the right end, because that's what God does. You and I, we are going to sin. Not that we just say, oh, I'm going to sin, so I better go sin. You don't throw your hands up just, you know, like a fatalist mentality, but we will. We will sin. Just like Peter, and we'll think we're sometimes doing the right thing, but in the end, totally miss the will of God. And some people have this terrible theology, and they say, you must figure out God's will perfectly, and do that perfectly, because if you don't, oh, you just missed the boat, and your whole life's going to be messed up. No, that is not true. God is bigger than you and I. You cannot overcome God. Can you slow down the process? Can you take the long way around? Can you make it a whole lot more painful? Certainly, okay, certainly you and I can do that. We probably all experienced it. But God is sovereign. And this also teaches us to pray. And when we pray, the prayers begin to change our hearts and bring us to a place of trust. It teaches us to trust God. 1 John 4, 8 says, Perfect love casts out all fear. And you see in this account that God has perfect love for us and that should cast out our fear. And this also brings the realization of the depth of the love of God, which you truly see in the crucifixion next week. And I was telling the people when we were talking about this message, I don't have like hardly any jokes this morning. Actually, I don't have any jokes this morning in what we talk about because this is kind of serious. I actually have a joke in the crucifixion and I don't have one this week, which is kind of odd, I think. Because this, this for me is the whole idea of why Jesus did what he did. It is amazing to me why he does these things. You know, one, one of the biggest teachings today in, in a lot of growing churches is that God doesn't have foreknowledge and that God isn't sovereign, that he's kind of like you and I. He's in process. It's called process theology. Uh, you know, and when asked why they teach this, people respond with, well, it gives people comfort. And I'm like, how? And they usually say things like, well, when bad things happen, they don't wonder where God went, that God was just as surprised as we are. And I'm like, that makes you sleep better? So time now becomes God and God's bound by time? No, I will tell you upwards of 25% of the scriptures of the Bible that you have in your hands was prophetic in nature at the time of its writing. God telling you what was going to come to pass, okay, prophetic in nature. So you ask these guys, what do you think about that? And they say, well, that's kind of a problem. Yes, that's a problem for them. But for me, it's not a problem because I know that God is good and I can sleep sound and I can trust fully even when everything around me falls apart and I feel like I have been betrayed or abandoned. God is still good. I know it is just a season in my life, and God's final word is the final word, and his final word is love and grace. 
I told you this a couple weeks ago, uh, that my wife and I, we want to have kids. And a couple of years ago, you know, we, we had this miscarriage, and we were very sad about it. We were kind of devastated. In the middle of it, we did not curse God or wonder where he was. It was just a deep sorrow. Okay? It was like Lazarus, you know, Jesus before Lazarus' grave. My wife and I, we know that God is good, that he is sovereign, and I, we have zero reason to start doubting him now. You know, we don't try to be sovereign and fight God. We simply trust him. And the God who has given us many cups of joy has given us this one cup of sorrow, just that one. You know, but, but who knows? You know, God can make me like Abraham and one day I'll be 100 years old and have a baby. I don't know. You know I'll go to the grocery store and I'll buy diapers for him and for me at the same time. You know? I don't know. But God has not abandoned us. Okay? God has not abandoned us. He is good. Oh, I guess I did crack a joke. Whatever. Okay. God has not abandoned us. You know, he is good and now we only see in part but then we will see fully, as he sees fully now. Do you see how having a proper view of God can change you? Do you see that? John, in this section, gives you the title. That, that title is King. And I am, honestly, I am sick of the neutered, weak, effeminate, worthless God who does nothing but cry with us all the time. We need a king who has authority, who can give orders and change things, and knows what in the world is going on and knows what in the world he is doing. That's what we need. Jesus, you look at this, he doesn't maybe look like a king. He is beaten, betrayed, spat upon. He's ruined from a cross. But the beauty and irony of God is that nothing is as it seems. Nothing. And what you see is just a shadow because Jesus is king, and he rules and he reigns, and everything is meant to his will. And that should encourage you. That should encourage you that this is the God that you need. The Romans thought that we needed a good government. The Jews thought we needed a good religion. Peter thought he needed a good fight until one presented itself, and then he ran away like a girl, unless you're a really manly girl. Sorry. Okay. And, and as things change, things just stay the same. You know, like the Democrats say, you know, bigger government. Bigger gover- government's not going to fix anything. The Republicans come in and they're like, oh, you know, let's have morality or more religion. More religion or morality is not going to fix it. You know, leading your own crusade with your own sword, like Islam says, is not going to fix it. Christ and Him alone is the one that fixes it. Crucified, dead, buried, resurrected, ascended, returning. That is what we need. Christ our King, by God's grace, that is what we have. That is what we have. Now, I don't know what cup God gave you. Okay? I have no idea. You know, maybe you right now have a cup that is very bitter. And you know, maybe you know, you're not pretty or successful or married or smart. I don't know. Okay? I don't know what, what your cup is. But you should drink the cup that God gives because there is a purpose to it. And when he does give you joy, you be joyful. And when you get sorrow, you trust God and trust him that he is not done yet. And the final word is his love and grace. Nobody in John 18 has any clue what God is doing except for Jesus. Except for Jesus. And God works all things out for the good of those who love him. So the question for you and I comes down to this. Do you love him? Do you love him? And if you do, that's what you need. That's all you need. Love Jesus. Love Jesus. Because when you love, you know, morality doesn't bring Jesus. But when you love Jesus, Jesus does bring morality. And that's how it works. Everything comes down to starting with Jesus. And this is why every week we come to communion. Because communion reminds us that everything is about Christ and what he has done for you and I. Communion is the place where if you were there at that moment, you would be like, I don't get what God is doing. He just killed Jesus. Yes, but Jesus rose. In communion, you take that cracker and you break it like his body was broken for you and I. You dip it in the wine or the grape juice, which represents his blood that was shed for you and I. And we remember what Christ did, that even in this circumstance when nobody knew what they were doing, Jesus still new 
and we can trust in his sovereignty and his foreknowledge that he can also take care of our lives as well. So we worship God through communion. We're going to worship God through prayer. Uh, if you need prayer and if you're in a place where it's like you're not trusting God and you need to, uh, there'll be some deacons and elders in the back of the hallway next to those doors. And if you want to pray in private, there's a couple offices they can take you into and pray with you. Uh, and especially, guys, I will tell you this. You need to know Jesus. If you don't know him, your life is constantly going to fall apart and you're going to wonder what's going on. I will tell you, you trust Jesus and everything makes a little bit more sense because he knows what is going on? We're going to worship God through prayer. Our worship, worship God through song. The band's going to come back up. I think. I hope. They're just like hanging out in the back and no one's looking this way. So, uh, Mikey, can you grab that for me? Or Jason? So the band's going to come back up. And as they do these songs, you know, t- take a moment or two. Uh, to, to take communion, to, to pray where you're at, to, to ask God, you know, reveal more of a sovereignty to you, to, to give you a greater trust and love in your heart. You know, so that you would learn how to trust Him more and more. Uh, we're going to w- worship God through giving. There's offering boxes on the side wall. And in the very back, actually someone said to me last week, they go, I didn't know there were offering boxes on the side wall. We always put in the back one because it's so cool. And I'm like, yes, the one in the back is awesome. There's like a big old wrench holding it up. Anyway, we give simply because God gave so much to you and I. And that is why we give back. So we give to the work of God's ministry. Uh, and then lastly, we worship God through fellowship. As, you know, Sean was saying, you can go to lunch with him apparently. Uh, and, uh, and apparently there'll be some little kid that calls you a monster somewhere, which is, which is always wonderful. Uh, but hang out. Get to know some people uh, because, you know, part of this whole idea of, of Christ's death and his resurrection and him being sovereign is that we then, you know, you're going to have friends that burn you your entire life. But in Christ, in Christ, you learn how to forgive people because people are not God and they are going to fail. And you can learn how to have redeemed and restored relationships again. Okay? It's part of the reason Christ died in real is to reconcile us to God, but also to each other. God's knowledge is sure. God's sovereignty is sure. And you, by loving and trusting him, are secure. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that we would be a people who truly learn how to trust you, that all things lay within your hands. God, that this morning becomes a, a very serious kind of subject of how much we trust you of how much we believe you really are in control and I ask that you would take our hearts and you would break them open and that they could truly embrace you as sovereign Lord God of the universe who has our very small lives within the palm of your hand And no matter what happens, no matter what happens, we can be a people that walk by faith and trust you. Because you are everything, including God of us. Amen.